So this is uh, your first time with us. Welcome. Welcome to our one of our two Christmas services we're going to be having. Um, you know, a brother said to me, I was telling him a little bit about what my sermon was going to be about, and I don't usually come up with any catchy phrases or anything. And he was like, that sounds like the reason for the season is treason. And so that's the title of my sermon. Um, but, you know, today uh, I want to focus on an aspect of Jesus that Joel last week touched on. Joel talked about Jesus being a king, a priest, and a prophet. And a lot of that is why he came, to assert his kingship, to be a priest for us and to uh, preach the word to us. But um, I want to focus on an aspect of his kingship that I think we sometimes neglect. Um, before we do that, though, I would like to pray. So, Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much uh, for Christmas, for the, the season that we get to celebrate the birth of your son, and uh, just be happy and glad in this room, um, Lord. But as we talk about serious matters, I pray that you bless my words, that I speak as one speaking the very words of God, and that you would uh, just be with me and, and be with the whole group here, that we can be unified and loving towards you as we listen to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So turn your Bibles to Luke 11. Um, you know, so I think that there's, there's a lot of ways that people view Jesus. And the way I'm going to explain what I want to talk about is first I want to talk about some common, I think, uh, misnomers about the Bible and about Jesus. And just real briefly. Um, and then I'll get into what I want to focus on in the scriptures, which will start in Luke 11. And then after that, I'm going to talk about the cross and how all this connects to the cross and we'll have communion. Amen. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we do with Jesus a lot of times. I think this is something that I've done with Jesus many times. We fashion him in our image. It's like we go and read the Bible and we start to look for ourselves because we know that we don't really match up with Jesus. So we try to make Jesus match up with us. And instead, we ought to let ourselves be challenged by the Word of God. You know, some of the ways we do this, we create false dichotomies. Right? Either Jesus is this or he's that. And if he's this, he's not that. And a lot of times, Jesus is both and. Right, we'll say, Jesus is my priest. I don't know if he's my king. And the reality is, he's both. Um, a really common one is, uh, Jesus came to give us faith, but not works. Jesus came to give us both. Matter of fact, the Bible says, prove your faith by your deeds. Uh, Jesus is loving, but he has no wrath. And the Bible teaches us that Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Love is full of wrath sometimes. And so Jesus had both. Some of us, we read the scriptures and we think, I need to be an independent man. Jesus didn't care what the crowds thought. And some of us read it and we think of codependence and we get clingy, right? And Jesus was both independent and codependent on the Father. And he brought us into a church. So if we want to love Jesus, 1 John 4.20, we have to love our brothers. So again, both and. You know, a common image of Jesus, one that I really don't like, uh, Jesus the hippie, right? Long hair and, you know, a nice, I mean, yeah, a nice white robe. That's great. I don't know how he keeps it so clean. And he's just really kind. Everyone he touches feels just warm inside. Now, Jesus is certainly a very fun guy to be around, I'm sure, uh, he wasn't, uh, you know, just full of anger towards everyone he saw, but he wasn't some hippie either. Uh, I've actually heard people, uh, presidents of certain Christian student organizations, 
who have recommended that you take LSD to increase your creativity. Oh boy. Uh, which, I'm not going to name names, but that's pretty crazy. <laughs> and I guarantee you Jesus did not do that. So he's definitely not a uh, hippie. Um, you know, Jesus is my personal savior. This is a, a classic one. He, he's here for me. Now, Jesus certainly cares about you, but he's not just your personal savior. You know, the, the price for Jesus to save you was a cross, and so the price for you to be saved is very similar. It's to die to yourself. Uh, you know, Jesus, this is one that I probably like a little bit more, and I have to repent of, the scowling killjoy, right? He walks in the room, he's like, I disapprove of all of you. That's my normal thought process. Um, he never had fun. That's kind of the, except for the Bible says he's accused of being a drunkard and a glutton, so that's not true either. Uh, and this is the most heinous one. Jesus, the guy who always agrees with me. Right? Whenever there's some argument, you're like, well, Jesus said. And it's like, did he or did you make him say that? Okay. Right? I mean, a classic one, politics. Jesus would vote for my candidate. Are you so sure? Do you know that? Did you ask him? I bet he didn't tell you that. And yeah, I used to be that way. Ah, Jesus would vote this way or that way. Listen, I, we don't know that. And to put him in that shoe is to say he's just like you. And I don't think he is. I think even more petty than that, Jesus is the same color skin as me. You've never seen him. What are you talking about? Like, you don't know that. And in reality, I don't know if it matters. Uh, what he was does not have anything to do with his skin color or who he was. And I think some of these statements or these thoughts, they contain elements of the truth, right? That Jesus, he, was, he loved peace. And he said, blessed are the peacemakers. But Jesus was also a warrior. Jesus loved faith, but he also said to prove your faith by your deeds. So there's so much that Jesus was both and. And when we distort Jesus, a lot of times we just make these false dichotomies in our own minds that have nothing to do with who he really is. Um, and we find ourselves judging God's word rather than allowing God's word to judge us. And that's not a role we want to put ourselves in. And I think this aspect of Jesus... The Jesus, the warrior who defeated sin and death and the devil, is often neglected in our presentations of his life and his cross. Uh, we tend to emphasize, uh, you know, forgiveness of sins, but we forget how that was accomplished. We tend to emphasize grace, and we forget how that was purchased. And so I want to prove to you that Jesus was, in fact, and always will be, a warrior. Okay, so Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. There's a beautiful, amazing prophecy written who knows how many thousands of years ago about Jesus. In verse 14, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So here we get a prophecy. The serpent, right? That old, the, Actually, the Hebrew word here is really a dragon. It's a little bit more scary than just a little snake that you see in the yard. Although, when I was in South Africa... Uh, black mambas are terrifying. <laughs> so they're like not that big. 
And they were like, dude, don't go over there. It might be a black mamba. And it will chase you and kill you. And I was like, all right, I'm out. <laughs> Send me home. Garter snakes. They don't even bite you. <laughs> so snakes can be quite scary, but the word here is dragon. And that dragon is Satan. He's, he's big. He's scary. He's mean. He's bigger than us, stronger than us. And God says, I'm going to send someone who's going to crush his head. That doesn't sound so peaceful to me. My dad taught me to hate snakes growing up, so it's kind of like he would have the dog murder the snakes, and that was great. So I really hate snakes. Um, and so I'm glad that it says this because I feel justified. Um, again, making Jesus my image. But in Exodus <laughs> chapter 15, verse 3, it says, the Bible, the Bible says, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And if God doesn't change, then he is a warrior and he's always been a warrior. And if Jesus is God, then he too is a warrior. You know, the truth be told, there's such an embarrassment of riches in the scriptures on this topic. It sometimes perplexes me that we miss it. Because I certainly have missed it many times. That Jesus wasn't a peace-loving hippie, although he certainly loved peace. But sometimes peace, and I'm not talking about our conflicts, but God's conflict with Satan it had to be won. The victory had to be won before there could be any peace. Um, so I'm not talking about us making war on each other. I'm talking about making war on Satan, which is what Jesus did. So there's so many texts that I could choose, and I had to pick one. So I picked Luke 11. If you could turn there again. I'm sorry I made you flip all over the place. Luke chapter 11. In verse 14, it says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So, wow, Jesus asked some good questions. I love this one. He said, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? So my point is this, okay? Jesus here is doing something amazing. He's casting out a demon that was causing someone to be unable to speak. And demons are very real in the Bible. This isn't just some psychological thing. I'm going to be honest. I don't think that's what it is at all. These are very real entities that attack people and overwhelm them. And Jesus is here and he's just casting them out. And they have no authority against him. And the people see this and they go to themselves, well, maybe it's because he's the prince of demons. Maybe he's in league with them and they're trying to trick us. And I want to explain to you guys why this is completely ridiculous. Okay, i got to go back a page in my notes. 
Okay, so Jesus has a resume. And, uh, you know, I have a resume. It's kind of sad. I don't know how I got the job here. Thank you, you guys. (laughs) My resume is kind of sad. Jesus has a resume, okay? And especially when it comes to combat. He has an amazing resume, combat with demons. In Luke 4, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the desert. And for 40 days, he contends with the devil in personal combat. For 40 days. I can't last one minute against the devil. Not on my own. Jesus took 40 days. He said, come at me. I want this. And then he dominated him. Matter of fact, he whooped the devil so bad. You know, it says the devil left. You know what I think he really did? He fled. He was terrified. You know, and uh, soon after that, Jesus is at the synagogue, and he's confronted by an evil spirit who mocks him and tries to undermine his mission. He says, he says this. The spirit says, ha. He's laughing at him. Ha. What do you want with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? Like he's saying, like, good luck, buddy. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus, be gone. And he's gone. <laughs> it's like, good one. Nice try. You going to mock me? Um, in Luke 8, Jesus confronts a man who has an entire army of demons inside of him. It says a legion. It's actually one of the most chilling lines I've ever heard. He said, Jesus asked him, what's your name? And he said, my name is a legion, for we are many. Could you imagine a person saying that to you? How creepy that would be? Like, what's wrong with you? And Jesus, and the demon begs him for permission, please don't torture us. And Jesus casts them into the pigs, and they go and drown in the lake. And sometimes I used to wonder, why in the world is Jesus killing all these poor pigs? Didn't he make them anyways? And the point was so people would see. The people saw the demons rush into, or the pigs rush into the lake, and they knew that something crazy had happened, that Jesus had done something. And it says they were afraid, and they asked him to leave. You know, Jesus in Luke 9 confronts another demon, and even his disciples couldn't drive it out, and it's overcome. In Luke 10, Jesus gives his disciples authority to go and fight on his behalf, and he says, trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. And so now we come back to our original text. And you look at it and you go, what are you guys talking about? Jesus is like, you really think this is a civil war between a demon and another demon? This is the kingdom of God coming in force. And how are you going to respond? You know, it's like, it's just completely ridiculous. And they know it. It's not, they, they obviously aren't convinced by their own arguments because they just they can't get rid of them. And so there's a lot of text about this. Tons, over and over, the Bible speaks about Jesus driving out unclean spirits. And I think we tend to lump it together with his healings, like they're the same thing. And they're not the same thing. One is a physical ailment, and the other is spiritual. And, you know, so ever since their initial confrontation in Luke 4, Satan has been testing Jesus, looking for ways to stop his mission, sending spirits, demons, armies. None of it's working. I think Satan's getting a little desperate here. He doesn't know what to do. Let's go to John chapter 13. So Satan's been throwing jabs. He's been testing Jesus. And he's a really good boxer. So he knows what he's doing. But Jesus is a bit more clever than Satan is. And in verse 21, in John chapter 13, Satan, again, like I said, he's looking for his opportunity. And in verse 21, he finally founds it. It says, after saying these things, 
Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. So here's Satan. He's constantly watching Jesus. He's looking for his chance. And finally he sees it. He says, This man Judas, that's my chance. I'm going to defeat Jesus. And I'm going to use my most powerful tool, death. And so Judas betrays Jesus. And Jesus is crucified. And Satan rejoices. Satan thinks he's won the victory. You know, when I was uh, younger, I don't do much fishing anymore because I'm so bad at it, it's embarrassing. But when I was younger, I used to go with my dad and fish a lot. And uh, my dad liked to go to the boundary waters. And we would go as a family. I got three brothers. We'd all go up, you know, big strapping lads, and we'd carry canoes and, and have a good time. And uh, Will thinks that's hilarious. So, <laughs> You know what, Will? I challenge you to carry a canoe with me someday. <laughs> But anyway, so we're up there, you know, and we're working hard, and we have to go about, I think it was 11, 12, 13 lakes in, something like that, which when I was young, that was a lot of work. I felt like that was the most miserable thing I've ever done. And I'm carrying this canoe, and I'm cramping. My whole body is a giant cramp, and I can't move my arms. And we finally get to the campsite, and I'm so happy. My dad says, the reason we came here is because I got a special lake that we're going to go fish in. And so it's called Lake Hatchet, I believe. I don't want to give away the secret, so I, I'm, I might be wrong. Um, <laughs> Don't take my word for it. But so we go out to this lake, and it's not a real big lake, but it's really deep, and it's really cold, and you can't see much under the water. My dad says, all right, we're going to catch some walleye today. So we start casting out leeches, and we're fishing, and I'm a terrible fisherman. Like, all I'm doing is throwing it in the water and just like, whatever. And I'm catching fish after fish after fish. And I was excited. I was like, fishing is awesome. <laughs> and my dad was real happy, obviously, because that's what he wanted. And, uh, you know, we caught all these walleye, and we are getting ready to go, actually. And my dad just cast one more, and uh, his rod just bends in half, like, a, like this. It was literally like this. And I got freaked out, because, you know, I'm kind of young, so I have this imagination, like, there's crocodiles in there or something. I was like, oh, no. I was like, this is terrifying. And my dad goes, oh, it's probably just a big walleye. And he's wrestling with it, and the canoe starts moving. And I was like, we're dead. It's going to tip. We're dead. And my dad, you know, he's chilling. He's just doing, you know, he's fighting the thing. And, I think a half hour he was fighting this thing. And uh, finally, the fish comes up, and it's not a walleye at all. It's a humongous northern pike. And those are some ugly fish, right? They're long. They got this snout, and they, they kind of look like a snake or a dragon. And uh, they're just gross. And uh, my dad was fired up, and I thought it was amazing. And uh, my buddy Isaac and I, we actually named the fish. We called him Mole, uh, M-U-L. That was his name. He didn't last long. We ate him. But <laughs> think about moles. He, he, yeah, we defeated him. He was huge. He was terrifying. And in that pond, he was the big fish. You know, you don't want to mess with him in that pond. And uh, in Psalm 22, there's an interesting little phrase. In verse, uh, verse 6, 
So this one, again, is about Jesus. And it says, But I am a worm, and not a man, scorned by mankind, and despised by the people. So if this is about Jesus, who is the king, his people don't really accept him. But he compares himself to a worm. And I didn't come up with this analogy. Uh, this analogy was actually created by Martin Luther a long time ago. About how Jesus became a worm to catch the big fish. And so here's Mole, right? He's living in his lake. He eats everything. Like, it doesn't matter who you are. He's going to eat you. And he sees that bait, and he goes, that looks good. And he snatches it, and all of a sudden, he's got a hook in his mouth. Now he's in trouble. And my dad, who's a lot bigger than Mole, my dad's like 320 pounds. I don't know. He's a big man. Here he is, just cranking. And Mole's not a problem for him, right? That's what it was like with Jesus. He baits in Satan, and the Father reels him in and just finishes him. Matter of fact, the Bible says death has been swallowed up in victory. So I like to think that I symbolically ate Satan years ago. <laughs> Good time. And so this is what Jesus has done. Through his cross, in Colossians chapter 2, it says he triumphed over his enemies. So what does this have to do with us? Well, in Romans chapter 5, if you could turn there. Uh, verse 6, it says, For while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So here in verse 10, or I'm sorry, um, in verse 10, it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. The Bible calls us God's enemy. You know, we like to uh, call ourselves the, the children of God, and we, I'm a son of God. And we talk that way as if the whole creation, every person, is a son of God. In all reality, the Bible actually says in John 1 that Jesus gave the right to some to become children of God. So not all people are children of God. Now, we're all created by God, and we're all created to be His children. But the Bible says each of us has turned to His own way. And so we have said, hey, listen, I know you're a real big God, but I think Mole is bigger. Matter of fact, he's a bit scary. I live in this pond, and I don't like it. <laughs> and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve Mole. Matter of fact, I'll bring him little tidbits of the other fish. He can eat them, as long as I stay alive for a little while. He'll eat me eventually, but that's okay. I'm going to pray on the others for his sake. And that's how we act. In John 8, some of you might be saying, no, I don't, I don't think that's true. I think I'm a child of God. In John chapter 8, verse 31. 
In verse 34, I'm sorry. So in America, too, we have this idea that we're born free. All, all, you know, all, how does it go? I forget. All men are created equal. All that stuff. We think that that's true. And maybe there's a little bit of truth to that. But in John 8, Jesus says this, because Jesus was challenging them about being set free. And they said, well, we're sons of Abraham. We're already free. We've never been slaves to anyone. And uh, that might be how we react. I'm American. Let's do what I want. I'm free. And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. See, now they're going back to, well, maybe my father's not Abraham, but it's God. They're trying new defenses, right? Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Those are cutting words. He says, your father is the devil. I don't, I don't like that. <laughs> that doesn't make me feel good about myself. See, that's another one of those false images that Jesus is here to make me feel good about myself. He's not, I don't, I don't even, I mean, maybe he cares about that, but I don't know how much he cares. He cares a lot more that you know the truth and that you're set free. And the truth is this, that every one of us has a choice. Okay, we can either serve God or we can serve the devil. And when we choose to serve the devil, we make ourselves God's enemies. And we put ourselves under his wrath. But Jesus came so that we could be set free. And there was a time when I personally was enslaved to sin. And I still wrestle with sin. But I was totally enslaved. I was arrogant. I was prideful. I was foolish. I grew up going to church. I'm a son of God. That's how I thought. And I saw myself as a good man. You know, I was kind of a goody two-shoes. You know, give me detention. I cry until I get out of it. That's what I did. <laughs> And uh, that's how I saw myself. But the reality is that the arrogance and selfishness that ruled in my heart manifested in greed, selfish ambition, racism, hatred, sexual immorality, and all manner of evil and destructive behavior. When I chose to live this way, I demonstrated to God that I was not his child and that I didn't want to be his child. I preferred to be like Satan. With my lips, I came to church and I sang his praises, and with my heart, I cursed him and begged him to leave me alone. But God looked and he loved me, and he sent his only son to make war on Satan so that I could open my eyes, so that we could open our eyes and see the truth. He sent him not only to make war on Satan during his life, but to suffer and die so that Satan could be defeated. And when Jesus came out of that, that tomb, he swallowed up Satan's most powerful tool, death, and he made it nothing. 
Right? What are we going to be afraid of? If you can't kill me, what are you going to do? Make me hurt? I'll die and go be with Jesus. It's not that scary. But when Satan has that tool over you, you have no hope. What are you going to do? He's going to kill me. I got nothing. He's a tyrant. And he didn't do that so that we could live a life without standards or expectations. So that we could just do whatever we want. Jesus has high standards. But those are loving standards, and they're good for us. And they set us free. And when we do that, when we turn to the power of God, like I did, and I made a decision to get baptized when I was 16, because I realized I was enslaved to Satan, and I needed to be set free. And I needed to do that, I needed to die to myself, and get a new king, and be under a new banner. Not under the banner of Satan, but the banner of God. And so, I want to encourage you guys, this is the time that we take communion. I want you guys to remember the Lord's struggle, how he resisted Satan. You know, Satan was with him for 40 days coming after him, and Jesus resisted. And I want you to remember that if you resist Satan, James chapter 4 says he will flee from you. And I think it's because he remembers and he's afraid. Right? It's like, man, Jesus whooped me. I don't want to deal with that again. (laughs) And so he flees. I want you to remember the Lord's death, that only in his death was victory over Satan possible. That through his death, he freed us. And I want you to remember his call, that each one of us should lay down our lives and carry our cross every day, just as he did. And that he, I would ask that you would pray that he will help you to walk in the way that he did. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you are good and you are kind to us. And you cast out Satan. And you defeated the ruler of this age who blinds the mind of unbelievers. I pray that if any of us are blind to your truth, God, that you would open our eyes. Help us to see the truth that's in Jesus, the goodness and the kindness, the graciousness and the mercy and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf, that we might be free. God, please set us free in your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.